0: A few years ago, in 2006, I received a letter from the Lord Lieutenant of South Yorkshire. It was a surprise, it was better than a bill. Uh, his, name's, his name, I don't know if it's still the same guy, now, his name was David Moody. And he was writing, unbelievably, to say that His Royal Highness, the Duke of Kent, wanted to come and visit our little workshop in Dinnington. We were all, and have a look around. I mean, I didn't even know that the Duke of Kent uh, knew us. I remember his arrival because the security beforehand was incredible. He landed in a helicopter in a nearby school playing fields and then was driven to our office. Some of the roads were closed and there were various people with guns. Um, hiding in various places, round corners, so we were all our best behaviour. And when he when he arrived, we discovered that he he was actually a really nice chap, and uh, he'd obviously done his homework and research what and and had taken the time to understand what we do in our little workshop in Dennington. and so we had a very pleasant conversation. And somewhere at home, I've got a visitors book that's only got one signature in it because uh, we we thought we'd better put it on a shelf and no one else ever wrote in it. So uh, there, there, there we are. On the subject of arrivals, and at the other extreme, some of you know that our eldest son, Rob, is studying in the US. And uh, when he returned home there once, after being here for a while, he eventually made it through arrivals in the airport in Charlotte and one of his best friends met him with this embarrassing banner. And if you can't quite see what it says, I've made it bigger for you. Welcome home from prison, Rob. (laughs) What an arrival. And what a welcome. I hope that doesn't give you any ideas if you're ever meeting someone at the airport. Well, this afternoon, we're thinking about arrivals. We've reached a very significant point in Matthew's Gospel, which is all about another arrival. Jesus finally arrives in the capital city of Jerusalem. It'd be great if you can keep your finger in the page of Matthew chapter 21, uh, as we look at it this afternoon. We're, we're reaching here the climax, actually, of all four Gospels, and this is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. We're, we're, we're actually, it's a bit weird, we're going to spend the next couple of months thinking about the last week of Jesus' life. And we're going to see something of how the opposition and conflict rapidly escalates and culminates in him being crucified a week after this. But today, we're going to see how he arrives. I have three simple headings. You'll see them on the program there. And the first... One that I want us to see is is this the exuberant exuberant celebration of the crowd. Make no mistake. this is a colorful and noisy and exciting uh, day here. Exuberant is a good word, isn't it? But let's try and get under the skin of what's going on. First of all we we should know that. This, The time that this happens was the beginning of the annual Jewish festival of Passover. Some historians estimate that as many as a few hundred thousand pilgrims would descend on Jerusalem for this week from all over the place, both in Israel and from all around the Mediterranean. And Jerusalem is not a massive city. The old part of the city is not huge but you can imagine every narrow street packed with visitors people camping outside the city because there's nowhere to stay in the city it's almost like a kind of Glastonbury vibe going on but I want to secondly to think about the geography of this as well you'll know that most of Jesus' three-year public ministry has taken place up north. (laughs) It's near Barnsley, somewhere. Around the Lake Galilee, that's where Jesus grew up. It's where most of his ministry occurred. But in in the recent past, Jesus and his disciples have been slowly traveling from Galilee. And they're, they're, I mean, Jews, when they travel south, they always go around Samaria, cross the Jordan River, and then back across the Jordan River through the city of Jericho and on to the city of Jerusalem. This journey is just over 100 miles. And you would arrive at Jerusalem from the east. And um, if, you, if you look at chapter 20, verse 29, Joy was helping us last week, you will see there that Matthew tells us that there was a large crowd... As they left Jericho. By the time we get to Jerusalem. Matthew tells us here in verse 8. That the crowd was very large. So there's a large crowd leaves Jericho. By the time they get to Jerusalem. There's a very large crowd. And the the military road from Jericho to Jerusalem was 17 miles. And it was uphill all the way. Nearly a thousand meters. But as the road gets steeper. The crowd is getting bigger. And one of the obvious reasons why the crowd's getting bigger is because there are pilgrims here who are also traveling the same route from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover. And these will be largely country folk, if you like, from the rural north, all descending on the capital city with its politics and the power. But many of these northerners will have also heard Jesus teach in Galilee. Many of these pilgrims will have seen Jesus' ministry up north. Some of them, think about this, may even have been healed by Jesus... Jai was helping us last week think about the two blind men in Jericho there who call out to Jesus as he passes on the road. And in chapter 20, verse 34, Matthew tells us that these men too followed Jesus after they'd been healed. They joined the crowd. So there's this sense here on this day of a growing, mostly northern crowd that is all very much pro-Jesus heading to Jerusalem and their anticipation and excitement is like off the chart you get that so Matthew tells us that as they approach Jerusalem from the east they arrive in verse 1 at the village of Bethpage on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives when you approach uh, Jerusalem from the east the Mount of Olives is actually in the way and um, Jerusalem is, you can't see it. It's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So as you approach from the east, this, this is what you'll see. Here's Jerusalem in the background. This is modern day. And this—here here is the Mount. We're on the Mount of Olives here, not quite at the top. And as you, as you come up onto the Mount of Olives and you reach the summit, this breathtaking panoramic view opens, and you can see the city across the Kidron Valley. You can see Jerusalem in the distance there. The, this is where the, this is very near, I think, to where the crowd would have arrived. And as they get to the top, they can see Jerusalem cross the valley and then climb back up to the walls of the city. I've got another picture here just showing the view the other way. And so th- this is from the city looking back to the Mount of Olives. I, I want to show you this one because it gives you a sense of the valley in between, the sweeping kind of Kidron Valley in between that they would have crossed as they climbed the Mount of Olives and came to Jerusalem. Remember this view of the Kidron Valley, because we'll come back to it in a minute. Um, Now, another important theme here is that so far in Galilee, in the north, Jesus has repeatedly told his followers... Not to tell other people who he really is. Matthew seems to hint that the religious leaders were already plotting to kill him. So Jesus Jesus is like not wanting to be super public. Um, And there's lots of times through the Gospels where Jesus says to the crowds and to his own disciples and to people he's healed, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. It seems now, though, that Jesus has decided that the time for secrecy is over. And he's more than happy on this day that this growing band of travelling pilgrims are wildly celebrating and almost carrying Jesus to Jerusalem on this incredible wave of joy. I learned something here that I'm not sure I'd fully appreciated before. Um, I I don't know why. I think I've always thought of Palm Sunday happening mainly inside Jerusalem. I don't know why. I, I I've I'd never really noticed before that almost all the action takes place before you even get to the city. Remember, on the east side of the Mount of Olives, you can't even see Jerusalem from the eastern slopes. You have to get to the top and come down the other side. So this very large crowd here, in verse 8 and 9, they are on the eastern slopes of Mount of Olives, near Bethpage. And they kind of form this procession. And they all reach the summit of the Mount of Olives together. They gasp as they see the view. And then the whole procession descends and crosses the valley. And comes into Jerusalem. And it, it seems that Matthew's making this deliberate contrast. Between the northerners from Galilee. Who were very pro-Jesus. Almost bringing him to Jerusalem. And presenting him to the city. That's the kind of picture that you get of the action that's taking place here. Look at what they do. In verse 8. They lay their coats on the floor. And then they cut branches from trees, probably palm branches, flat leaves, and they lay them on the floor. It's the equivalent, isn't it, of rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. And the crowd in front and the crowd behind are singing and shouting. Matthew tells us at least three of the chants. The whole thing comes from Psalm 118 a psalm in the Old Testament which was often used around Passover festival time many of these pilgrims would be very familiar with the, the, the song of Psalm 118 and the shout of Hosanna is brilliant uh, this is a brilliant sidebar by the way um, so sometimes in English we say goodbye originally A long time ago, that that phrase was, God be with you. And it got shortened to, we say goodbye without even thinking about that, do we? God be with you, goodbye. Hosanna, I think, has got something of that. It it literally means, oh Lord, save us. But over the years, it it started life as a phrase, as a desperate prayer. And then over the years, there's a shift from crying out for God's help To actually believing that God would send help, to actually celebrating the fact that He's already done it. And so Hosanna is almost like, hooray! It it started out as a prayer and then becomes like a a confident cheer of praise in a God that is trusted in. And here are the crowds laying their coats, laying their branches. Hosanna to the Son of David. that is loaded with messianic ideas. David was one of Israel's, if if not Israel's greatest king, and God had promised the nation that one day, a descendant of David, a son of David would come and rule gloriously. So the Jewish people were expecting a son of David to come one day to reign as their messiah king and here they are the crowd all these northerners descending on jerusalem hosanna to the son of david jesus finally arrives in the very city that king david had made his capital city a thousand years before Jesus is the son of David that faithful Jewish believers had been longing for for centuries. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a way of saying that Jesus has been sent by God, his father in heaven. And then Hosanna in the highest heaven. (laughs) Praise God. In the highest heaven. This crowd are sensing that there's rejoicing in the very height of heaven itself. Where God is enthroned. Because his promised king is coming to be crowned. So I hope you see here that the overall picture that Matthew's painting. Is one of excitement and celebration and great expectation. I wonder whether there are some in this crowd who had known Jesus up north in Galilee and had been slightly disappointed that Jesus hadn't done this sooner. And now here he is, doing exactly what they'd longed for publicly declaring his true identity the one who had healed the sick, fed the hungry. Was now coming to Jerusalem to smash the Romans. He was coming to liberate them giving, them, giving them their country back, enabling them to prosper again as they had centuries ago. This crowd here, I think, are thinking in military terms, nationalistic terms. Jesus was their king. Who was coming to fulfill all of their hopes and dreams and crush all of their problems. And they were there, it was actually happening. Well, let's turn, secondly, to think about what I've called the beautiful gentleness of the king. In some ways, the star in this passage is the donkey. Um, Borrowed donkey, actually. And Matthew tells us here two important things about the donkey, we haven't talked about the donkey yet. First of all, in verse two, it is clearly Jesus who very deliberately arranges it all. So it's evidently not spontaneous. You know, they didn't just trip over a donkey and think, oh, it'd be a good idea to ride that. Jesus deliberately sends two of his disciples into the village. He, he's carefully planned the details beforehand. It's, it's weird, isn't it, that Jesus has supporters in and around Jerusalem that he can call on. Later on in this same week, Jesus will also borrow someone's upper room to have a meal with his disciples on the night before his diet. We We call it the Last Supper. Had to borrow that room here he borrows two donkeys unnamed people clearly friends of jesus here he needs a donkey and he knows someone and has arranged with someone who will happily lend him a donkey but the second thing to notice is in verse 4 matthew also tells us that the donkey also fulfills an ancient prophecy from the old testament And the point here, I think, is that this is not just a random event. Jesus doesn't need a donkey here because he's tired. I mean, they've just walked 100 miles. He he doesn't need a donkey for the last, you know, mile and a half. Um, it's, It's striking as well. Think about this. that I'm told that pilgrims who come to Jerusalem for the Passover generally were expected to arrive on foot. So for Jesus to deliberately ride the last part of this journey on a donkey in the middle of a rapturous, cheering crowd of pedestrians is very much designed to say something. And the amazing thing is that Jesus is agreeing with and allowing the crowd to honour him as the Messiah King while at the same time making a very powerful statement about the kind of king that he is and the underlying point here of of course is that Jesus doesn't ride into Jerusalem here on a majestic war horse but on an unbroken donkey Mark tells us that this was a donkey that no one had even ever ridden Matthew tells us that it this, this colt was there, uh, presumably with its mother, <laughs> to calm its nerves with all, all the noise. This, this was an unbroken colt. If you like, Jesus doesn't arrive in a Ferrari with his designer clothes and shades on. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in a, in a Fiat Uno or a Robin Reliant, <laughs> smiling. <laughs> it's like Jesus is subverting what it means to be a king. And interpreting his kingship on his terms. But what does it mean? I, I think for those who maybe had eyes to see all of this at the time on this day, this will have been mind-blowing. But for others, maybe even the disciples, I, I'm not sure that much of this quite made sense until much later, maybe even after the resurrection. And I think to fully understand what's going on here, we 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 have to know and appreciate the Old Testament. Jesus certainly did, and if we do too, I, I think it will help us to appreciate what Jesus is thinking about as he rides. Into Jerusalem on a donkey as the crowds are cheering him on. I, I just want to say a little aside here because what I, I think one of my burdens here pastorally is that all of you here appreciate that the whole Bible ultimately points to Jesus. And this is hard work. Um, we, we live in a society now that is largely biblically illiterate. <laughs> and some of you I know are new Christians. And it feels overwhelming. It feels like you're learning a new language. It, 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 it's hard work and it takes time. But I, I want you to know this. The key to unlocking the Bible is that God has given it to us. All this history, poetry, the laws, the kings and the priests and the prophets, he's given all of it to us to help you to see the rich beauty and the infinite glory of Jesus so that you'll know the joy of of delighting and loving in and loving Him. The, these scriptures, therefore, are a gift from God to help you make much of Jesus. And I know it's hard, <laughs> but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. It's not an exam to pass, it's pointing you to someone to love in Jesus. So we have a tremendous opportunity here to just scratch the surface of, of that just a little and try to understand what Jesus is conscious of in the light of the Old Testament and why Matthew brings in this quote he seems to do it a lot doesn't he and the reason I call it beautiful is because there's such a rich blend here of the things that Jesus is carrying with him as he rides so let me just show you three things. We could look at more, but you'll be glad that I've shortened it to three. First of all, Zechariah. So the reason I say Zechariah is because this quote is mainly from Zechariah chapter 9. You might have a little footnote in your Bible that says Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. We don't need to turn to it, but this, that's where Matthew points us first. Say to your daughter, say to daughters, iron. See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I wish we had more time, but um, let's kind of zip it up quick. Um, Zechariah was a prophet and a priest, actually, 500 years before Jesus was born. And he wrote a book that's the next to the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, So if you want to look it up, you can look up uh, Zechariah afterwards. And Zechariah's ministry took place in a dark time um, when the people of God were also arriving, actually, back at Jerusalem, a ruined Jerusalem, actually, after being exiled in Babylon for decades. Their city and their proud history and their monarchy, line of kings, had been destroyed And they were now a people coming home and living in a land that wasn't their own. And they would never again have a king of their own. And in this dark period, 500 years before Christ, the prophet Zechariah spoke of a king who would one day come to Jerusalem. And the way people would recognize him when he arrived would be that he would arrive riding on a donkey 500 years before Christ, Zechariah said that. He won't arrive in a chariot or in a tank. And I think the emphasis from Zechariah is on his gentleness. The kingdom of this new king will be one of peace, not of coercion. His reign and rule will be marked... Sorry, I think I've just knocked the translation off. I think it's back on now. <laughs> His reign and will be marked not by aggressive shows of force and might, but by meekness and love. It isn't that he's weak. Far from it. He comes here with infinite power, and ancient authority. And he does come to bring salvation to his people, but his power is totally under control, rather than abusive. And his authority is characterized by compassion and tenderness. The salvation that he brings is not a military conquest, That suddenly recovers their national glory. His salvation is one that will overcome the darkness in their own hearts. His salvation is one that will truly reconcile them to God. And set them free to worship God. Joyfully. And to love one another freely. Jesus did not interpret his kingship. In terms of armies and battles, he is glad on this day to be acclaimed as the Messiah King. But not in the way the happy crowds thought. But there's more than just gentleness to this biblical picture, though. So let me take you to another place. And this is a story from the life of Israel's greatest king, King David. I think the prophecy of Zechariah is important, but as well as looking forward, I think Zechariah is mindful of something that had happened earlier. And we've no time to read this, obviously. If you want to, you can read it across five chapters, actually, in 2 Samuel 15. Where Israel's greatest king, King David, once faced a rebellion led by none other than his own son, Absalom totally tragic time. Imagine being a king and your own son stabbing you in the back. Just imagine that for a second. Absalom was very ambitious and very sly, and he worked for a long time in secret to draw the hearts of the population away from his dad and towards himself. And ironically, in the light of this story of a king on a donkey, he He bought himself a chariot and horses and even hired a posse of 50 bouncers to run ahead of it. He was, he was wanting to make a big splash. His dad never suspected a thing. And one day Absalom decided that he had enough support and it was time to strike. And King David had to leave his palace and his throne And here's the thing that connects this ancient story to Zechariah and to Jesus. King David leaves Jerusalem out of an eastern gate and he crosses the Kidron Valley and he climbs the Mount of Olives weeping barefoot barefoot, until one of his loyal supporters called Zebar kindly gives him a donkey to ride. A great battle takes place later, and although David's army does win, 20,000 soldiers are killed, and David's son Absalom, again, ironically, riding another donkey, is caught by his long hair in a tree and dies. Now, imagine for a moment David's mixed feelings in all of this. The rebellion's crushed, the throne is safe, peace is restored. But when David receives the news, he weeps inconsolably for his rebellious son, Absalom. And as King David returns back across the Kidron Valley and enters the city, no doubt riding on the same donkey, there's no rejoicing. The battle is won, but there's no crowds cheering. The king comes back to Jerusalem in triumph, yes, but also in great pain and sorrow. The king is vindicated, but simultaneously grieving over his rebellious son and in what would otherwise have been a tremendously happy time, David could not be sadder in this moment. I feel sure that Zechariah's later prophecy alludes to this. The gentleness of the royal kingly donkey rider is partly because the joy is tempered with a certain amount of grief and sorrow. There's no gloating or arrogance. There's no bragging rights here. The triumph itself is painful. And there are tears even in the victory. But I also feel sure that this incident has to be in the mind of Jesus as he rides on a donkey across the same Kidron Valley. Despite the cheering crowds... Jesus knows exactly where he's going, and he also appreciates the traumatic rebellion that has happened in this world that has led the very king of glory to this point. Just look at the previous chapter. Chapter 20 and verse 17 says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So the crowd here want to crown Jesus as their victorious Messiah King. But as Jesus rides the donkey, even as he smiles, he knows that the only crown he's going to be wearing this week is a crown of thorns. Rather than being exalted on a glorious throne when they get to the city. He's going to be lifted up in a few days on a Roman cross to die. And so, like King David, Jesus knows what it means to be rebelled against, mocked, humiliated. And here is a gentleness. Gentleness, yes. But it's mingled with a sorrowful awareness of what is coming and why it's necessary. On this day, Jesus can see through All the happy singing. And he's aware of a greater rebellion even than Absalom's, isn't he? The The reason Jesus is even here is because of the human rebellion towards God that lurks in our own hearts. We want to go our own way we don't want God to be our king we don't love him as we ought to love him and in a sense that's treason isn't it and in spite of the crowd's enthusiasm Jesus has not come to save his people primarily from the Romans he's actually come to save them from themselves. He's come to confront them truthfully with who they really are. But he's also come in gentleness to pay all of their debts. The true king here is knowingly and deliberately and bravely going to the cross. He is truly infinitely and joyfully powerful and yet he comes quietly to carry their sins and sorrows and shame and to take all of that away and reconcile them to God I love the fact that Jesus is both a greater king than David and a better son than Absalom it's the eternal son of God. He could have incinerated them in a moment. But he, do, he, he doesn't grasp for power or he doesn't come to crush them in retaliation. This king comes to lay down his life for their sins. There's one uh, thir- third place I want to go to. We'll be quick with this one. And there's others too, but there's one other place I'd like to go, and it's to Genesis. And we actually went here during our series looking at the life of Joseph before Christmas. If you were here, you might remember this. There's another prophetic reference to a donkey being tied up in Genesis 49. And the picture painted there was of a king who tethered his donkey. And he was so fabulously wealthy, he tied it up to his vine. And obviously the donkey will stand there and eat all the grapes. The implication being that this king is so wealthy, he has so many vines, that he doesn't care. He can afford it. And so this prophecy was hinting at the vast wealth of the long-awaited king. He owns everything. He's noble and powerful and just and true and glorious and prosperous and wealthy. And yet we cannot fail to be struck by the fact that when King Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he doesn't even own a donkey, let alone a vine. He has to send word to two unnamed friends to borrow his ride. If you have eyes to see it, Jesus is supremely rich. And he gladly gave it all up and willingly became poor. There is a wonderful reference to this in Paul's writings where he says to the church in Corinth, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, could become rich. He's an eloquent chap, Paul, isn't he? (laughs) 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. What a wonderful idea that is. Now, where I wanted to get to was to see that all of these ancient themes are blended somehow in Jesus' deliberate choice here to say, lend us your donkey. (laughs) I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on it. The crowds are delirious. But I, Jesus is, he's, he's in another place, isn't he? He is the promised and long awaited King. He is God the Son in human flesh. He has come from heaven, but he rides here not to glory yet, but to the cross. And what a compelling blend! Of gentleness and grief and generosity blazes like a fire within him. See, your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey. Lastly, let's look at the mixed response of the city. Matthew only records for us very briefly. In verse uh, 10 and 11, imagine the scene. I mean, this noisy, colorful procession mostly made up, I don't want to be rude, but mostly made up of northern country bumpkins singing their hearts out and proclaiming a man and a donkey as their messiah. Matthew says the whole city was stirred, and they ask, "Who's this?" Now, apparently during the Passover, the city authorities often had to increase security, partly because of the deep desires in people's hearts to be rid of the Romans. And every time it looked like someone was a Messiah figure, everyone would get excited, and, and sometimes during the Passover, it reached fever pitch. And the authorities would have to put extra cancel all leave, all the all the security guards would be there. A bunch of unruly Galileans suddenly proclaiming their prophet in the capital city was extremely provocative. I, I think there's more than a hint of fear, actually. In the city's reaction, but the response of those low to Jesus is very interesting as well. The crowds answered in verse 11 This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You can almost hear their pride, can't you? He's ours. (laughs) But what they say is true, but their understanding is partial, they don't yet fully appreciate. Jesus really is and or anything at all of where he's going to the cross so Matthew here summarizes very briefly and says the city's a little bit stunned and perhaps a little bit scared while the crowd who brought him are very positive but only partially understand what's going on here's the thing Uh, I think we all appreciate, don't we, that sometimes we and people in general turn to God in times of crisis because there's something we need really badly. What we really want is a king who will ride into town and sort out what we think our problems are. Wow, <sighs> come on Jesus. I need to pay the bills. I've got a massive problem in my family. I need to find a job. Oh Jesus, please help and please hurry up. The wonderful thing is that Jesus doesn't wait until our motives are pure, does he? Before being kind to us. But the point here is surely that Jesus wants to go so much deeper. He's not ridden into Jerusalem to kick out the Romans. But in order to die. And all the praises and all the hosannas were so profoundly right and justified. But not for the reason they thought. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus had come to save them from their sin and guilt and rescue them from being separated from God. They thought that Jesus had come to restore Israel's glory, but Jesus expands his mission to the whole world. And I I just wonder as we close whether the question of the slightly scared crowds in this passage in verse 10 is a great one for all of us to reflect on who is this who is this who is Jesus what do you think maybe like the city dwellers you're slightly afraid of what he might demand of you Or maybe like the crowd, you admire him greatly, but still yet only in a partial kind of way. You hope he'll be able to help you somehow, but do you know him as the king who is beautifully gentle and who was willingly crucified to save you? I want you to notice how Matthew frames Zechariah's prophecy in verse 5. It's not an exact quote from Zechariah. We haven't got time to go into all that. I wish we had because it's delicious. But he says, say to daughter Zion. Daughter Zion is a nickname for Jerusalem. So he, he, he basically says, he's almost summarizing what the exuberant crowds were doing on this day. Say to the city of Jerusalem, look! That's what Matthew says here from Zechariah. See, Jerusalem, look. It's a great proclamation of something, isn't it? Hey, Jerusalem, look at how your king comes to you. See what he's really like. And I wonder whether God is saying this to us too, to you too. Look, look look and of course he's not just saying look as in it's a treasure hunt and he just wants you to notice so you can tick him off this is like someone saying to someone in a burning house look the fire engine's coming or to an injured person look the ambulance is coming and your heart leaps look Jesus your king is here maybe god speaks to you through this story and says look your savior is here isn't he beautiful he's calling you to look but in a way that believes and relies on and embraces and trusts him Do you remember my daft story about Rob from the very beginning? Welcome home from prison, Rob. Well, maybe we can even sense Jesus coming here to us, to Jerusalem, to you as an individual and saying, hey, welcome home from prison. (laughs) It's a prison you didn't even know you were in, but I see you there. And I've come to set you free from sin and guilt and death and hell. Matthew says, look, your king is coming to you gentle, even riding on a donkey. And the city asks, who is this? Even right now, even right now today, may you all, each and every one of you, look and see and live Amen We're going to sing and uh, as our musicians come let's bow for a moment and we will pray Father we thank you so much for, for your word we thank you for the arrival of the King we thank you We thank you for Jesus' massive heart to come to our world, to to this city, and even spiritually to come to our own hearts. We pray that you would help us to look and see the beautiful gentleness of the true King, your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his good and kind name. Amen.